Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Susan is a lady who throughout her life has been totally isolated from the world. She was very much a person who was isolated from any kind of real social interaction. She has an interesting relationship with reality. It's, it's one of those things where you get a real insight into what's happening under the surface for someone. Regardless of what they were convicted of, it, it, it is still like a human experience. We're all human, we're all fallible, we're all learning. Welcome back to the Landscapers podcast, which is all about the real-life case behind the HBO and Sky drama. I'm Caroline Crampton, a crime fiction devotee who has spent plenty of time in this murky world that lies between fact and fiction. When we get hooked on a true crime story, it's usually because something about it surprises us. Maybe it's the strangeness of the crime, the twists and turns of the investigation, the characters... But to get to grips with that weirdness is just to scratch the surface. It's when we dig into the deeper emotional currents that underpin the crime that things start to get really serious. In this second episode, we'll be digging into the emotional heart of the story of Susan and Christopher Edwards and the Mansfield murders, and hearing how that was translated onto the screen. First, you'll be hearing from creator and co-writer Ed Sinclair, followed by other members of the production, and someone who remains in touch, indeed close, with the real-life Susan and Chris. Just a warning, this episode contains reference to historic sexual abuse. For Ed, the emotional heart of this case lies with Susan Edwards. She was the reason that he became hooked. I had a very clear sense right from the outset of what the basic angle of attack on the show was. And it was it was Susan's view. It was her fantasy life. And that's that's what drove it. Brought up by reclusive, isolated parents, she seems to have formed few, if any, lasting connections with friends, family or colleagues. As an adult, she met her husband Chris through a Lonely Hearts column and they were soon inseparable, including, as Susan tells it, dealing together with the aftermath of the shooting that fateful night in 1998 that left Susan's parents, William and Patricia Witcherly, dead. It wasn't any of the weird and intriguing details about what Susan and Chris did to cover up the Witcherly's deaths, such as burying their bodies in the garden, impersonating them on Christmas cards and important documents, and doing financial transactions in their name that really held Ed's attention. It was something else something that didn't seem to be getting quite so much attention in the news reports that he was reading about the case. The detail that kept on sort of pinging in my, in my head, I suppose, as I was reading these things was, this, was about the fact that she'd been sexually abused by her 
father as a child. There was a lot of emphasis in the in the press about, you know, those wilder details. But that detail about her being sexually abused was kind of always mentioned in passing, and I felt that was kind of weird. It felt to me like that was probably that probably explained an awful lot, or at least gave a a background and a and a context to the rest of it, especially to someone who has a sort of strong fantasy life. It felt like there was at least a possibility that some of this story was a response to trauma. You get, on the one hand, the cold-hearted killers are Susan and Chris, and then on the other hand you get this poor old couple, William and Patricia Witcherly, innocent victims, and there's no doubt that in terms of the crime that was committed against them. They are innocent victims and it was an abhorrent crime. But I guess we we have to sort of say, but they did they did what they did to Susan. Um and just ask the question, what what are we to make of that, basically? What do we do with that information? Susan told police about the abuse that she had suffered as a child at the hands of her father during her interviews explaining that this was in part responsible for the strained relationship she had with her parents as an adult. And this deeper emotional layer appealed to Ed, especially when he learned that Susan's account of the abuse, although accepted by the court as being true, had not been deemed recent enough trauma to be a factor in the sentence she received. I'm sure most people are of the view that they probably did commit the crime. There was no problem with the evidence presented by the police and there was a lot of problems with the evidence presented by Susan and Chris. So my thing was more about the sentencing. Nothing that acknowledged what she had gone through at the hands of her father. And I don't have an answer to how that might have looked or how that should look, but it did feel like quite an old-fashioned understanding of how childhood trauma operates on a person throughout their life. As he dug into this emotional aspect of Susan's case, Ed felt there was a more nuanced story to tell. It was about examining the forces that make us who we are and the extent to which we're able to escape our founding influences, our genetic makeup, environmental factors that affect us throughout our lives, all of of that, and how our own personal responsibility interacts with all of those things. One of the peculiarities of working on a show like Landscapers is that it's not really possible to meet these central figures in person. The restrictions on media access to convicted prisoners meant that Ed wasn't able to visit Susan himself, but they have been able to exchange letters over a number of years. Before I started writing, it was a sort of a... It was a deep breath, because one of the challenges, I suppose, one of the difficulties of writing a show like this is that something genuinely horrible has happened. And these people, in all likelihood, have done have done it more or less in the way that the police have suggested. And so I, I did for a while sort of wonder if I really wanted to go down the route of doing this show at all and talking to these people, talking to those people at all. And via this correspondence, Ed has been able to form his own impression of what Susan is like, in addition to all of the other research his team has done. She's very sort of polite, very normal, which seems like a strange thing to say about a double murderer, but very normal and kind of straightforward, very uh, articulate um, and very open. Um, 
She's very thoughtful. She's quite eloquent. Really candid in the way that she answered um, my questions. She lied a lot to the police. And even in court, there were things that, that seemed pretty clearly unlikely. So I was aware, of course, when she was writing to me that a lot of this was potentially part of the story as opposed to necessarily the truth. Ed didn't ask Susan about any specific details of the case, and indeed he made very clear to her from his first letter that it wasn't his intention to reopen her defence or assist with any appeal. They still say they're innocent, they're sticking to the story, and it wasn't in my interest to push back against that. So there was a certain amount of filtering and working out... um, you know what I thought was true, but I think I think the thing with the show is that I, I kind of realised quite early on we don't we, what we couldn't do was decide what happened in the show. I mean there were details, but it was more about the relationship stuff and what they felt about each other, Susan and Chris, and a little bit about what her relationship was like with her with her father. That sort of tonal stuff, rather than actually any sort of kind of specific details. I think that's what the letters were really about, and getting a sense of who she was, a sort of deeper sense of who she was. Then for a little while, Susan went quiet. Ed waited for her letters, but they didn't come. She'd wrote a short letter saying she was having a you know a difficult time and was um, uh, depressed and didn't really didn't feel she could keep up the correspondence for now. But she said, "But I can, I can, you know, I, I'll, I've told Chris, you know, that he can expect to hear from you. So Chris would be very interested in continuing the correspondence, which was, you know, just a kind of classic example of Chris and Susan's." For want of a better word, there's kind of sensitivity to, to the, well, Susan's, I guess, wish to please, partly. But Chris is like that, too. I guess that that is, is, as much as anything, an indication of how complicated and nuanced people are, that they did what they did, and yet are also, in many senses, very reasonable people to deal with. Ed was able to have this contact with Susan and Chris, because of the efforts of one particular person, who these days is closer to them than anyone else. I'll say this from the outset, and uh, people may raise their eyebrows, but I really, really like them a lot. I I have a lot of time for them. This is Daryl Ennis Gale. He's Susan's solicitor, and went on to become a big part of Susan's life. But the way he initially got the job was completely by chance. Most firms who deal with criminal law are on a rotor-based system and if someone's arrested at a police station where you're covering that rotor, then your firm is called upon to represent that person. So I was asked to go and deal with Susan's case. So it was actually walking distance. I remember it was a rainy night. I remember I actually walked to the police station from my house. When it's something like that, you're told to get straight down to the police station, meet and greet the person. Daryl's first meeting with Susan didn't exactly go as he had planned. Usually I'd want to hear what the police have to say before I heard what my client has to say. However, when I met her, she started telling me about the case, basically giving me a full breakdown of what her defence was in in relation to what had happened. And I I didn't have any kind of thoughts as to whether uh, uh, she was innocent or guilty or whether I liked her or not. It was really me just trying to shut her down and stop her talking to me. She was very, very um, timid, but very, very talkative. And um, my first impression was that 
I suppose, was how does this um, quite timid lady quite, uh, get into a situation like this? As he's worked with her over the years, Daryl's relationship with both Susan and Chris has developed as he's got to know them through their trial, their conviction, and now while they're in prison. They have weaknesses, they have frailties, they, they have strength. They, they are quite endearing people when you get to know them, particularly Chris. He's an he's a, a, a absolute gentleman. Everyone who's ever met him says the same, and he continues to be. Whenever I've met him, he is so polite and so friendly. Susan's situation in particular was one that Daryl felt was deserving of sympathy. She was heavily analysed by psychiatrists and psychologists, and part of the case really was Susan hated her, her father, who was by her account, God rest his soul, of course, and it's a tragic um, situation, but not a very um, nice person. He abused her. He had very, very um, hardline right-wing views, which was alternative to Susan's grandfather, who she had a lot of respect for and who, who reminded her of figures such as um, the Gaul Churchill and, and Gary Cooper. So I think... It, I'm not by any means a, <laughs> a, 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 a psychiatrist, but I think there was a lot of, um, there were clearly father issues and issues about male role models in, in Susan's life that, ha that had an effect on her. Daryl's apparent respect and affection for two people who have been convicted of very serious crimes might be surprising to some. But he's an experienced defence lawyer and his compassion towards his clients is all part of how he views justice and the British legal system. I don't think I could ever work on the other side of the fence, i.e. for the prosecution, and, and don't get me wrong, they do a brilliant job, and, and we, need, we, need, we need people on both sides. The question is, you always get asked, how can you represent someone who you know is guilty? Which is a silly question, really, because I'm... Um, Everyone needs representation. Everyone needs a mouthpiece. That's our legal system, isn't it? I mean, whatever you've done, however bad it is, you need some... There, there, there usually is a reason, and sometimes that needs to be explained. And I think that um, from my own background and my own experiences in life, it, it's easy for people to, to get into situations um, where, where they, they haven't, uh, have done the wrong thing and they've, they, if they've committed crimes. And often these people are, are, are vulnerable themselves. If you've read about this case at all, you probably have your own ideas about Susan and Chris's relationship. But Daryl is one of the few people who's really got to know them as a couple, got to see their bond up close. I would say this, they are very, very, very much in love, as more in love than I think I've ever seen anyone, to be honest. But it's, in my view, kind of a very, very much a classic kind of cliched, ultimate love, unconditional love affair, relationship, something that you just don't really see. Ed has come to appreciate that bond too. And if nothing else, he would like viewers to finish the show with an understanding of the emotions underpinning their relationship. I'd like them to leave with a sense of the power of love, I guess, to help people find a place in the world and... and the reason I think that could sound horrible is, of course, in this instance, you could argue that love has, has led to two people being murdered. Right from the beginning of his writing on this project, he saw it as a romance, 
and it informed the structure all the way through the development process. Susan's kind of um, slightly Amelie-like outlook on her time in France as if it's some wonderful romantic adventure. That's how I started the show in, in the outline, as I remember, and that's how I started it here. I, I mean, that was a big decision, of, of course, in a thing about real life, is at what point do you start the story? When do you start telling the story? I, I, could, have, I could have started from Susan's childhood, in a way. You know, I could, have, I could have done it chronologically like that. I thought maybe at some point I'd start it on their train back from France, and then it would jump backwards and forwards from there. But then I thought, yeah, I wanted to set up the love story, first of all. I decided that was the kind of sort of key thing. And then, obviously, the past claws them back in. Once Susan and Chris returned from France, surrendered to the police, and began to be questioned as part of the investigation, Ed faced a major screenwriting challenge. The dreamy, romantic world that he had created for them across the English Channel had shrunk down to the confined space of a police interview room in Nottingham. With his protagonists in reality stuck behind that table and confined to their cells, he had to find an imaginative way of breaking them out so that the viewer could see more of the story unfold on screen. He calls his solution to this problem the myth. So it's, it's myth as in, uh, it's not spelt M-Y-T-H, it's spelt M-I-T-H. And that is specifically because the former myth, the myth we all understand, means not true. And I didn't want to be saying in the script, this isn't true. I wanted to be saying, this may or may not be true. There was just this parallel place, basically. As originally conceived, it's where Susan and Chris could almost interact with each other as they're constructing the story for the police. And so the myth was their story, basically, the world of the story that they were telling the police and to a certain extent each other. And as we had a sense that their world was changing and was dynamically evolving and their relationship was dynamically evolving even when they were separated and in their police cells. The whole idea of the myth was that, that it was slowly invaded and taken over by the police who would then be able to wield it to their own shape and tell their own story because... Of course, that's what, you know, in the adversarial system of English law, you're essentially building two competing stories and you, uh, you, want, you want yours to be the most credible. As we heard in episode one of this series, the couple were very interested in history, particularly heroic wartime stories and classic Hollywood figures like Gary Cooper. They spent thousands of pounds that they siphoned off from their victims' pensions on memorabilia from this period. This world of the imagination was clearly very real and very emotionally charged to them. Fantasy is a big element of Susan's story. If you're going to approach that from Susan's point of view, which is a, you know obviously an imaginative act and and an inherently, I, I suppose, empathetic, sympathetic act, even, then you have to find a way of getting into her head to a certain extent, and you know I always at pains to say that this isn't a, a sort of a, a serious attempt to say this is what the real life Susan, this is how her, her brain works. It's more of an attempt to imagine at least a, some kind of version of it that makes sense. As the you know actor, we, I have to go, okay, that's maybe not what we're presenting or maybe that's not our world. So therefore there's always got to be like a line that you draw um, because it, 
it isn't a documentary and it isn't, you know, a recreation. It's a kind of exploration. This is Dippo Oller, who plays Douglas, Susan's solicitor in Landscapers. It's a character based on Daryl Ennis Gale, who you heard from earlier. Dippo found that he personally identified quite closely with this fictional version of Daryl and had to find the right balance between doing intensive research into the part and allowing the character to guide his own portrayal. It was a double-edged sword because you do want to, you know, dive into the research and go, I feel exactly like, you know, Douglas. And, you know, I, I, can, I drink the way he drinks and stuff like that, but it wasn't really the point. You know, the point was more to kind of get an essence of what was going on, an idea of what had gone on, and then go, okay, you have the bones of these people, but this is a completely different playground in terms of, you know, the, the world that Ed and, and Ted had created for us. The balance between real-life events and the fictional story is delicate, and the boundary between the two can sometimes feel blurred for those involved. Here's Daryl again. I went to the shoots when they filmed at Camberwell Green Magistrates, which is uh, the Magistrates Court in Camberwell, obviously, which is now closed. Um, but ironically, it's where I used to work. It's the first courtroom that I used to really work when I first qualified because I used to work in that area of London. So it was, a, it was surreal in itself going to the courtroom and seeing the filming of, of, the, of the show. The producer called Dippo over when they were shooting a scene. Katie was like, there's someone here to meet you. And I was like, what are you talking about? And one of the two of them was like, Daryl. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> it's, it's us, it's us, it's us. And so we didn't really talk about the role in itself. You know, we, we just talked about, we talked about his work because I'd seen some of his work before. And he, we talked about ours. And then, yeah, he's just such a lovely guy. And then I was just like, you know, so how, what, how do you think? Like, what do you think? And he was like, yeah, 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 you know what I mean? <laughs> so I don't know what he'd seen or if he'd, you know, actually, I don't know how involved he was in kind of big, if, if he was at all in me getting the part or anything like that. But you're always a bit curious when you, you know, you know you're kind of playing a realist version of somebody. And obviously this is the guy. And like, um, yeah, I mean, he just seemed so like pleased about everything. It was, um, it really exciting just to see the whole process and, and, and to meet him and see myself being portrayed by him. You know, so it was, it was it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. Dippo immediately clicked with the empathetic side of Daryl and was able to take some of that forward into his own performance. And just like within like five seconds of, talk, of talking to him, you kind of understood why he... Could, he's the type of person that can make connections with people. And Darrow is such a lovely guy and you could completely see how he could find the best in somebody in the way that he did with, with um, Susan and Chris. And so, like, from then on, I was like, okay, if I wasn't before, I really need to, <laughs> to kind of uh, tap, into, tap into that. And I think, you know, it kind of um, lined up the timeline of filming that we hadn't, uh, Olivia and I hadn't filmed, like, some of our latter stuff we you know we kind of did the early stuff and then i think at that time meeting him really helped me going forward for that scene so etern- like eternally grateful to you know for his story um being a part of uh, that story and, and being able to you know contribute to it in my own 
thespian way, which is, you know, <laughs> the portrayal. With Dippo's help, Daryl's real-life empathy for Susan and Chris made it into landscapers. I think, you know, empathy is such a human trait to tap into one because it, it really does connect people. And they were kind of very straightforward in terms of what they believed had happened. Because he's got a big heart, Daryl and Douglas, you know, the two that have got big hearts. And I like to think I have a big heart as well, so maybe that's why I got the job, I don't know. <laughs> Landscapers ask some difficult questions of us and how we think about crime. Susan Edwards was convicted of a terrible crime, but as was accepted by the court, she was also a victim of childhood sexual abuse. And as a result, how we feel about the character on screen is not straightforward. Beyond the weird details of backyard burials and eccentric memorabilia, there's an emotional depth to this story that we have to settle into slowly. But just as you think you finally got the measure of it, everything changes again. All good true crime stories have a twist, and this one is no different. Next time, how this case was cracked on screen. Some of the shows they show are just your generic kind of police station situation. And I'm always, my partner will tell you, I'm always shouting at the television saying, say no comment, don't worry, you answering questions. Just tell your client to shut up because they would never, I would never be sitting there letting them speak, giving a full confession to the Bobby. You can watch Landscapers on HBO and HBO Max in the US and on Sky Atlantic and Now TV in the UK. The Landscapers podcast is produced by HBO, Sky and Campside Media. This episode was written by me, Caroline Crampton, with Joe Barrett. The producer is Joe Barrett. Our executive producer is Josh Dean. Our script editor is Natalia Winkleman. Sound design is by Joe Barrett and Rod Sherwood, who engineered the episode. Music is by Arthur Sharp from The Score to Landscapers. Special thanks to Chris Fry and Katie Carpenter at Sister. <laughs>